Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Dear friends in Christ, a little bit of a segue from last week in Boat Building 101. I'd like to relate to you a story about one of my coworkers. Her name was Agnes. This was back in the days of Nymphia's Boat while I was still an apprentice. There were anywhere from four to to a dozen of us apprentices. And and one summer, Agnes came uh, because one of the crew was her boyfriend. And she worked with us. Agnes was tiny. Agnes was 5'3", maybe. She might have tipped 100 pounds. But pound for pound, few could match her enthusiasm. So she worked the summer, but when fall came around, she went back to Sturgeon Bay and back to the shipyards. You see, because Agnes built big boats. She was a welder at Peterson Shipbuilding up there. And her diminutive size and her skill at welding made her an invaluable asset for them. Next summer, same thing. She came down and worked in wood for the summertime because it was too hot in the summertime to go trooping around with half again her weight in protective clothing. But she regaled us with stories during break time anyway. Once, because of her size, she was sent into a really small corner of the ship to finish up the inside weld on an exterior deck plate that had been installed. So she crawled and then inchwormed her way back through this narrow cavity dragging her welding electrodes in a mirror. A mirror, because the only way she could reach it, even with her size, was to lay on her back, reach over her head, and then weld, watching the weld in the mirror. Have you ever tried to sign your name looking in a mirror? It's upside down and backwards, which might have been a tall tale, of course. But the way she related it, especially the verbal abuse she heaped on the other person back in the hold who was controlling her welder, this wasn't for polite company. We believed her. Upside down and backwards. I thought of Agnes as I read our text from Luke chapter 6. Everything about the text, everything after the narrative setting, and he lifted up his eyes to his disciples, everything after that is suddenly like you're welding in a mirror. It's upside down and backwards. Blessed the poor. That's literally what the Greek says. I mean, our text adds a bunch of words to try to help things out. But does it really? Blessed are you who are poor. It's still, blessed are the poor. We're tempted to run to Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? In fact, a number of the Greek manuscripts add that in the spirit into Luke. Because it seems easier if we're talking about being spiritually poor and not physical poverty, actually not having a coin to our name. But why must we understand Jesus' words as one or the other? I would suggest that Luke, led by the Holy Spirit, gives us both. I say that especially in the light of the Incarnation, Jesus does not seem to distinguish between body and soul. Go back to the Gospel two weeks ago, right? Luke chapter 4. Jesus rebukes the demons in verses 35 and 41, clearly spiritual. And in between those two events, he rebukes the fever that's in Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Verse 39, clearly physical. And later he'll rebuke the winds and the waves in chapter 8. Is that spiritual or physical? You decide. Blessed the poor. Seems backwards. Blessed the hungry. Okay, I got a couple of pounds of belly fat I wouldn't mind losing. But again, should we hear both? 
Blessed the hunger for the things of God as well as the food that sustains body and soul. Isn't it upside down unless we know that food is actually coming, that there will be a lunch or a dinner later today? Blessed the ones who weep. Not just sorrow over sin, the spiritual side of things. Blessed the ones who weep because of the damage that sin has inflicted. I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, Genesis 3, by the sweat of your face till you return to the ground. Where dust you are, to dust you shall return. Tears are blessed. The tears of sorrow because of the pain and hurt in this life, that's, that's kind of backwards. Blessed are you when you're hated and excluded and slandered. And the very next words out of Jesus' mouth is, Rejoice on that day and leap for joy. Yeah, leap upside down. It would make more sense. But what's really upside down and backwards is the second half. There's no parallel to the woes in the Sermon on the Mount. And even the commentators step very carefully over this section. Chrysostom, for example, shifts the judgment from you, the hearer, to those speaking well of you in verse 26. But the Spirit has given us this text. Even if it's not sweet in our mouth, as the scroll, scroll to Ezekiel, it's, and it's already bitter like John, woe to you, the wealthy. Time out. Doesn't the small catechism teach us to identify wealth as a gift of God? Both the fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread, and then the explanation of the first article, what does this mean? He gives us clothing and shoes, house and home, food and drink, wife and children, land, animal, cattle, all that I need to support this body and life. He daily and richly supplies all of this. Woe to me because of that? That's upside down. Woe to you, the ones who are satisfied. Again, it's enough to eat is a blessing of God. It's a necessity of creation, being a creature that we eat. Woe to you who laugh. I, we don't need any more browbeating to become more dour Lutherans than we already are, right? And good reputation, literally, it's a job requirement for me. Titus chapter 1, for an overseer, for a pastor, as God's steward, must be above reproach. So I'm sorry. I'm sticking with Agnes. This is upside down backwards. It's backwards because we're reading it in the wrong context and we're reading it with the wrong object. Not, I am blessed or woe to me. Instead, let's go to Isaiah 53 in the fourth servant song. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Arthur Just writes, the most important feature of the Beatitudes is that they are Christological. All God's blessings are found in Christ, and Christ is the source of every blessing. Close quote. The purpose of this section is not to focus on us, but to put the focus on Christ. And the Christological, the Christ-centered focus can best be seen by asking, whom do the Beatitudes and woes best describe, if not Christ himself? Blessed the poor, 
Go to Luke chapter 9. In response to someone who volunteers to follow Jesus, he replies, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Blessed the ones who hunger now. Go to John chapter 4, the, the Samaritan woman at the well, right? Fast forward through that great theological discussion about living waters and worshiping the Father in truth and in spirit. The woman goes back to town to tell her neighbors what she's found. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said one to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Blessed the ones who weep now. Go to Luke 19. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they slander and cast down your name. Go to John 15, the upper room the night he was betrayed. If the world hates you, Jesus declares, know that it hated me first, before it hated you. It's not upside down and backwards. It's right side up in Christ. And the woes, the woes are even more engaging. Woe to you, the rich. Go to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Woe to you, the ones who are satisfied, who are full now. Go to Luke chapter 4 in the temptation in the wilderness. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Woe when speak, people speak well of you. Go to Luke 23 at the cross. The people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. No, he would rather save you. He would rather save me. If we step back and consider what the Beatitudes and woes teach us about Christ, and how that reflects on us. If we ask, what is the theology of the Beatitudes and Woes? The answer is the theology of the cross. 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. One year after the, the 95 Theses, probably a much more important document came to light. It was the, the Heidelberg Disputation. It's really the debate that the theses called for and offers a much more complete expression of what exactly is saving faith. It is admittedly a, a challenging text, but it can be summarized by saying this much. There are really two stories that mankind tells about itself. The first is the glory story. We have come from glory and we are going to glory. We're bound for glory. This story can point to the garden as the wrong turn that got man off track, off the glory road. Yes, there are hiccups and setbacks. There's even open rebellion. But such a story can easily co-opt 
Christian language and narrative. For example, the cross itself can be neatly assimilated as the reparation that makes a return to glory possible. But the cross, the cross will not go away so easily. If you sit and contemplate, it is very disquieting. It insists on its own way. Here, here is the very creator of the universe, dead, a bleeding and bloody corpse. By our hand, practically, if not literally, Luther wrote, the real and true work of Christ's passion is to make man conformable to Christ so that man's conscience is tormented by his sin in like measure as Christ is pitiably tormented in body and soul by our sin. Now the whole world closes in on you. Close quote. Conscience can no longer defense itself. Instead, conscience is reclaimed. You are redeemed. It is the great reversal. What I deserve, he received. What he merited, I enjoy. What he is, I become. The cross becomes our story. And in Christ, the Beatitudes and woes become us. To see that, go back to that narrative preface. Remember the part that actually made sense to our ears? And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd who came to him to hear and to be healed from their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Power came out of him. The strength to take up the cross and follow him. Luke 9. From Luther again, if Christ wore a crown of thorns, we should not expect people to place wreaths and roses on our heads. Indeed, our hope is in the death and resurrection of Christ, as Paul writes about in our epistle lesson. It's upside down and backwards in the eyes of the world. Jesus trades our sins and sorrows for his righteousness. But blessed is the ones who hunger now or they will be satisfied. One of the characteristic elements of Luke's account is, is the table fellowship that Jesus enjoys with, with all sorts of people. Again, it's upside down in the Pharisees. He eats with sinners. But on a place called the skull, we see the banquet of Isaiah 25 in black and white. No, in living color. On this mountain, the prophet writes, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich feast, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. The satisfaction of the feeding of the five thousands is just a glimmer of what is going to come when he returns. The satisfaction of this meal we are about to receive, given and shed for you, again, is just a foretaste of that great feast. In Christ, our future is right side up and straight ahead. To him be the glory now and forever. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.